Thanks, Don. Thanks, uh, friends and family from Wagner Hills. And I um, want to welcome you here. Uh, my name's Brad. It's a privilege to have you along as we journey through the book of Revelation this fall. And we've called this series Reclaiming Revelation, Strength for Today and Bright Hope for Tomorrow. And part of the language of reclaiming uh, is that in a lot of ways, Revelation is a bit of a tricky book. And I suspect that if you've hung around Christian community for any length of time, that you've heard either odd, bizarre, or strange things coming out of the book of Revelation, sometimes unhelpfully used to justify certain perspectives, and it just gets sometimes weird, scary, and bizarre. And so we said, let's just walk through the book of Revelation and see what is it that God wants to teach us? And what are the things that John, who was the author under the Holy Spirit, envisioned when he wrote this Spirit-inspired prophetic letter to a group of seven churches in uh, what's now modern-day Turkey? And John wrote it down, and he wanted to help them because they wrestled with the issues of real life, and, and he, he was their pastor. And so he wanted to encourage them and strengthen them in challenging times, complicated times that they lived in, times that we'll see today maybe aren't all that unlike ours. And many of the messages to these seven churches have some overlap to them. So Pastor Wally covered two of them uh, when he preached last weekend, and then next weekend we'll finish off these, this section of Revelation and then we'll move into the middle section of Revelation. And in that section, it gets really interesting real quick. So make sure you stick around uh, with us as we dive in. So today, we're going to look at the longest letter of these seven. It's in Revelation chapter 2. starts in verse 18. And the longest letter is actually written to the smallest church in this group of seven. And you might remember that we've talked a little bit about the fact that when John writes to them, he does, uh, you know, something that you might be familiar with, and whether it's parenting or in another setting where you're giving instruction, you start with like, okay, thumbs up on the following things. There's some things you're doing well here. And then in the middle, he says, uh, there's some things you could really grow in and improve. And then he finishes it up with saying, here's how you could actually move forward in those areas in your life. And so John is using this same kind of element. He's going to highlight some areas of concern, and let's jump in and see where this group of off is off track and where they're on track, what it means for you and I uh, in our lives today. So turn with me in your Bibles or on your device to Revelation chapter 2, and we'll start in verse 18. I'm reading from the New Living Translation and uh, Revelation 2.18 says, Write this letter to the angel of the church in Thyatira. This is the message from the Son of God, whose eyes are like flames of fire, whose feet are like polished bronze. I know the things that you do, and I have seen your love, your faith, your service, your patient endurance, and I can see your constant improvement in all of these things. So right away, he has these words of commendation, like big thumbs up. In fact, it's the most, uh, the, the longest and the most commendable list of things he says to any church. He says, you guys are just knocking it out of the park on these five things, like a deep love for other people around you, sincerity in your faith, 
service. You're, you serve other people well. You endure patiently when suffering comes your way. You persevere, and you just keep working at it, and you're growing in all of these areas. And this really contrasts with some of the other churches. One of the church in Ephesus, remember, he said two weeks ago to them, gang, you used to love me and you don't love me as much as you do anymore. What does that look like? And, and to this church, he says, no, you love me actually even more now than at first. You're just continuously growing in that area. The church in Pergamum last weekend, they were in danger of giving up. And this church, he says, no, you guys keep persisting in the face of challenges and difficulties, way to go. Like, this is a real word of commendation to this group of people. And so, we can look at this and say, man, this, this church must be awesome. These people must have a sense of vibrant faith in their lives that just gives them the ability to do all of these things. So, He gives them the most commendations, but He also gives them some of the strongest warnings in areas of concern because we're finding out that they actually might have some of the most dangerous and difficult challenges of any of this group of seven churches. So let's keep reading in Revelation chapter 2, verse 20, where he says, But I have this complaint against you. This is Jesus speaking to His church, saying, you are permitting that woman, that Jezebel, who calls herself a prophet, to lead my servants astray. She teaches them to commit sexual sin and to eat food offered to idols. I gave her time to repent, but she does not want to turn from her immorality. So, right away, we see a couple of things here that Jesus, as a properly concerned jealous lover for His church and for people who are following Him wants to point out in their lives and say, gang, you have to get some of these things, pay attention to them. And so, the first challenge is this woman named Jezebel. So, we don't know if that was her real name or not. That's in some ways not significant. But what is important and why he's using this language is that it's reminding us or invoking that woman Jezebel from the Old Testament. And he's saying, just like this woman is causing trouble in your church here in Thyatira, that's just like the same traits, characteristic traits, as her namesake back in the Old Testament. So if you remember back in the summer, we walked through the life of Elijah, and we came across Queen Jezebel a couple of times, and we learned that she was generally wicked, evil, and not very nice whatsoever. She, in fact, was one of the primary ones that was responsible for leading people away from following God. She married King Ahab, and she led and used her influence politically, religiously, in every way she could to lead people away from God. She personally financed, out of her own pocket, 850 false prophets to lead people in worship of false gods like Baal. She found uh, anyone who disagreed with her, and she had them murdered. The biggest problem, though, was that she actually advocated a type of spirituality that we might actually recognize. So she said, that you know what you could do? You could worship God all you wanted just alongside of worshiping any other popular foreign God that you wanted to. 
any other deities that were popular in that time in ancient Israel. So Baal or Ashtoreth, she was a big proponent of what we would say is a both-and kind of spirituality. Her mode of operations was to suggest, oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure follow Jesus, no problems with that. That's all fine and good, but don't forget to also do a bunch of other spiritual stuff. Yeah, for sure, go to church on Sundays, but like maybe practice a bunch of other things too. You know, Freemasonry, a little bit of Eastern mysticism couldn't hurt you. Yeah, keep reading your Bible, you know, but just keep open-minded to a bunch of other stuff too. I mean, you don't want to get narrow-minded after all, right? And in other parts of the world, this is really quite evident and widely practiced, and it's really more stark, and it's easier to spot. People who are involved in missions globally would call this syncretism, where you're blending practices together from Christianity and from other traditions and other faiths. And so we like to think to ourselves, well, we would never do anything like that. Like, I get it, you know, Brad, you spent a month in East Africa this summer, and, you know, there was all kinds of people working with witchcraft and then going to church on Sunday, but that never happens here. Like, that's, that's for other parts of the globe. So we like to think we're immune from it. But when God says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me, he kind of means it. This is because it's a heart allegiance issue. So in our day and time, it usually shows up in more like a generic type spirituality that says, sure, yeah, that's fine, follow Jesus, but just make sure you follow other paths as well. This Jesus talk is fine, but just keep, keep open to other stuff. But Jesus says, no, worship the Lord your God and serve Him only. And so, friends, we have to ask the question, can you have it both ways? And the Scriptures are clear to actually pull us back time and time again and say, you know what, when it comes to following Jesus, we can't have a both and type of approach. It's Jesus, period, not Jesus, plus, plus, plus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a German pastor and theologian, and he was actually killed for his opposition to Hitler's genocide programs because he understood that the German church was making commitments to say, you know what, we can, we can be our own stuff, and then we can also have a bunch of political stuff that we mix into that, and it'll just totally be fine. Don't worry about it. But he said, no, there's, there's a call to holiness and purity when it comes to following Jesus. And he said something quite profound. He said this, the human heart has the capacity for only one all-encompassing, all-embracing allegiance. In other words, if you've said to Jesus, you, God, you can have my heart, you can have every part of me, that's an all-embracing, all-encompassing allegiance. And so then there's not room for other things to try and squeak in there and say, I, yeah, Jesus, you can have all of my heart on Sunday, but then Monday I'm going to give my heart to something else or someone else. So this woman in the church at Thyatira who called herself a prophet, this Jezebel, was at work in the church, and somehow she had convinced 
Christians there that this type of syncretism was not only just okay, but it actually evidenced that they were more sophisticated spiritually than other people. It was a deeper understanding of the truth than other people had, and that this both-and approach would just not form any kind of problems in their spiritual lives. And so what she had convinced them to do was participate in two things, sexual sin and eating of food offered to idols. Now, we know from studying history and looking at this city of Thyatira that these two activities took place in this city inside of trade guilds. So these trade guilds were organized groups that controlled commerce in a given realm. And the city of Thyatira had tons and tons and tons of these. They had more of them than any other city that we can read about in the ancient world. And they were famous throughout the ancient world for this emphasis on their trade guilds. Um, if you remember reading in the book of Acts in chapter 16, Paul comes across this woman named Lydia. And she's a business person. She sells purple cloth. And he says, hey, where are you from? And she says, I'm from Thyatira. And so it was likely that she had been uh, moved there to Philippi by her uh, commerce and enterprise, and she was selling stuff and doing well with that. And so Thyatira was actually known as a real center of commerce. Approximately, they estimate, 50% of global trade at that time in history went through their city. So they controlled a lot of the flow of wealth throughout the ancient world. And so they had these guilds that were organized to kind of protect their business interests. So they had work, woodworking guilds, they had wool working guilds, they had linen working guilds, leather workers, potters, bakers guilds, bankers guilds, shoemakers guilds, on and on and on. And so these guilds controlled commerce, and so membership in these guilds, you were required to participate in them if you wanted to be involved in that particular area of industry or business. So membership really did have its privileges financially. But see, the opposite then was also true. If you were not a member of the guild and you would not be let into the guild or you voluntarily excluded yourself from the guild, you were pretty much out of business because no one was going to do business with you if you weren't part of that kind of union or guild. So we know that Thyatira had more trade guilds than any other city, and these guilds then, as a way of kind of securing their position, all chose a patron god that they were going to worship and that they were going to give themselves to. And so Christians in Thyatira now were stuck a little bit trying to figure out, whoa, what do I do? How do I actually process this? Um, like, should I be a part of these guilds? Because then am I supporting this kind of idol worship or this kind of worship of a false god? And William Barclay in his commentary makes it clear as to why this arrangement posed such a big challenge for Christians. So membership in the trade guild required full participation in all of the activities of the guild. And that would be problematic for a lot of Christians because a lot of these social activities were tied up to these worship of other false gods. And this is the ruins of one of the temples there. So the trade guilds would have these common meals together. And the meal would begin and end with a cup of wine poured out as an offering 
to the particular god that that guild felt was important. It was kind of like a heathen grace before and after the meal. And so Christians had to wrestle with the fact, should I participate in a ceremony like that? Can I just come late to the guild meeting and miss that whole portion? What, what are my options here? And still further, a meal would almost certainly follow a sacrifice of an animal. And so the token part of the animal would be offered on the altar to this false god. And then the meat of it would be given and presented to the worshiper for your meal to make a feast with the other members of the trade guild. And so Christians had to think about, okay, can I sit here and eat this meat that I know was offered to this false god, this idol? What am I saying by my participation in that? And still further then, these trade feasts most often degenerated into places and times where people were so drunk that they got involved sexually with other members of the guild. And so the Christians had to really wrestle with, like, should I even go to a feast where this is going to happen? This is just the accepted things that are going to transpire in that place. So can you feel the tension here for these Christians? Because as a Christian in that city, if they choose to participate in the trade guild, they're putting themselves in these environments that they know are not going to be healthy and wise for them, and they know are going to continue to drag them away from God. But if they said, you know what, I don't want to participate in any of that stuff, then the trade guild says to them, that's fine, you don't have to, ain't nobody doing business with you. And so it would be incredibly damaging, and it would spell financial and social ruin for them. So what to do for these Christians? And so into this space steps this woman, Jezebel, and she's offering what seems like a healthy, reasonable theology of compromise. Revelation 2.20, which we read, says she was actively teaching people, you know what? Don't worry about participating in sex outside of the bonds of a covenant marriage relationship. That's not a big deal. You know, just ask forgiveness instead of permission. She's actively encouraging people to do what the apostles had decided would be offensive for people to participate in, these feasts to idols, because we have in the church now in Thyatira both people who grew up Jewish and who had not touched any of those types of things ever in their lives, and then people who were non-Jewish who were coming to experience a relationship with Jesus and were really kind of much more liberal than their Jewish counterparts. And so the apostles said, you know what, it's best in Acts 15, hey, if you would just not eat meat sacrificed to idols, it would, it would really do a lot for the unity of people in the church. So should Gentile Christians just abstain from going there, participating in meals that were known sacrifices to idols? Tonight's dinner was sacrificed to Asclepius, but whatever, right? Meat is right. Who cares? Meat is meat. But you see, this is a deeper spiritual significance to it because we're talking about compromise. And if there's one thing that a jealous lover cannot abide, it's compromise. And just, oh, just a little bit of me. Don't, don't worry. It's not a big deal. 
you, you still are pretty loyal to Jesus, right? So Christ puts his finger on this area of concern and says to the church, you know what, don't let yourself be fooled. You can't nurture and actively harbor a little, just, just a little bit of sin on the side and still maintain a vibrant, healthy, growing, dynamic relationship with Jesus. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't still sin, right? We wrestle with it. But what it, this is a different dynamic. She's encouraging them and they're saying, yeah, I'm totally fine with this. I'm just going to keep this going in my life and then keep Jesus over here. Sometimes we, we get a little caught up in the question, well, how much sin is too much sin? Like, how much sin can I nurture or permit in my life? How much alcohol can I drink without getting drunk? I'm going to try and get as close as I can. How much porn can I watch without getting caught? How much can I shade the truth before it actually becomes a lie? How much escapism can I indulge in before it begins to impact my relationships? How much compromise can I tolerate and still get away with looking like a good Christian? You see, we may not have the same pressures that the trade guilds put on those Christians there that put them in these compromising places, but we're actually pretty good at going there ourselves on our own because we wrestle with this compromise each day and each time we ask the question or comes up, you know, it's just a little sin. Who or what could it possibly hurt? I'll just ask forgiveness later. But see, there's serious problems with compromise. Listen to the strong warning that follows in Revelation chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, where Christ says about this Jezebel, you know what, I'm going to throw her on a bed of suffering. Those who commit adultery with her will suffer greatly unless they repent and turn away from evil deeds. I'm going to strike her children dead. Then all of the churches will know that I am the one who searches out the thoughts and intentions of every person, and I will give to each of you what you deserve. This is why Jesus introduces himself to this church in verse 18 as the one whose eyes flame like fire. He sees, he knows what's going on in each of our lives. And he's calling us to that place where we say, you know what, I, I want to walk out holiness. I want to walk out following you in a deeper level a pursuit of you, Jesus, that doesn't allow for compromise or concessions or side deals. Because when you begin to commit yourself to just being okay with compromise, it, you begin to open up the second concern that Christ expresses for this church. And his second concern is compartmentalization. See, when you begin to walk down the road of compromise... One of the most common ways to deal with it in your own life or soul is to try and begin to carve up your life into tidy little sections and then begin to keep them separate from each other. It keeps it neat and tidy. That way, if I compromise in one area of my life, it doesn't impact, in my mind, the other areas of my life. And this is kind of a, a very common philosophy that people chase down in our day. They'll even say things to you like, you know what, 
Just keep that Jesus stuff in the spiritual compartment in your life. Like, just keep him in a tidy box. Take him out on Sundays. Totally fine with you doing that. Religious occasions and weekends, just that's fine. And then please put him back in there and do not let him come out. And don't, whatever you do, let him mess around with other compartments in your life. Compartmentalization, compartmentalization happens when people say to us, you know, it's fine that you're excited about Jesus now, but if you could please just keep your religious convictions out of any conversation with me. And whatever you do, you know, keep them out of any sphere that you walk into, your workplace, your family, education. Like, this is the real world. We don't need uh, that Jesus stuff here. It's important to strike a balance, right? Am I right? And so they nurture this kind of compartmentalization. Dr. Jeff Jork notes that compartmentalization is the means by which we maintain the illusion of a both and. In other words, I can both be holy on Sunday and then allow poison into my head on Mondays because it's just entertainment or whatever. It's compartmentalization. See, but when Jesus is in charge of your life, He kind of messes things up for you. <laughs> because when you say yes to Jesus, you say, God, I want you to have all, I want you to change these parts of my life. Like, not just the religious and spiritual parts, but like the parts that we've heard such amazing testimonies of here today. I want you to start working and redeeming some of addiction issues. I want you to work in my family. I want you to work in the way in which I relate to other people. I want you to work in my finances, my decision-making grid when it comes to things like parenting, my work habits and ethics, my hobbies, all this stuff. Instead of just saying, Jesus, here's your little compartment. Can you please stay there and don't come out? See, I feel this pull. Sometimes, you know, I wish that it was a little neater and tidier than it was. Sometimes in our neighborhood, I wish I was not Pastor Brad, that I was just one of the neighbors. And then they wouldn't be like, oh, here comes the religious guy again. Great. <sighs> I can remember when I was in high school, I had a job, and I made a conscious decision before I went in on the first day. I was like, I'm not going to tell anyone about any part of my life that has anything to do with Jesus, you know, that I go to church or anything like that. I'm just going to, you know, be Brad here. Take Jesus, put him in his box, lock, throw away the keys. And then whenever Jesus busted out and people would ask things like, aren't you a Christian? Should you be doing that? I was like, uh, no, I don't know anything about that Christian stuff. Uh, the life of compromise. I'd get angry. I'd make excuses just like Peter did when he denied Jesus. And he said to people around him, I, I don't know what you're talking about. But compartmentalization has a way of killing relationships. If you said to another person in your life, this is just your compartment, you don't get access to any other parts, that's not the basis of a healthy relationship. And so doing that to Jesus can kill that vibrancy in our relationship with Him. So the two concerns, compromise and compartmentalization, even though at the beginning He's like, yeah, you guys are doing awesome. But the great thing is He says, not all of you have actually fallen into the trap 
of these two concerns. So the church of Thyatira, not everybody had been infected with this virus. So there were those simply known as, he calls them the rest of you, (laughs) who uh, had received a special word of commendation. Let's look at verse 24 and verse 25. He says to them, I also have a message for the rest of you in Thyatira who have not followed this false teaching, deeper truths as they call them, depths of Satan actually. I will ask nothing more of you except that you hold tightly to what you have until I come. There's a promise contained in those beautiful words. I will ask nothing more of you. You see, what can happen is if we get ourselves into a situation where we feel like, okay, I got to keep my loyalty to Jesus, then uh, I need to make sure I stay away from bad things. Then, and if the culture uh, or attitudes of people around us are very low, sometimes we fall into the danger of overcorrecting. And we think, okay, you know what I need to do? I need to put up tons of rules and fences to try and help me maintain my purity and authentic relationships with Jesus. But sometimes when we do that, we can fall into the same traps as the scribes and the Pharisees in Jesus' day. And we actually end up adding our own traditions and rules to Jesus' commands. And this is known as legalism. And all through the centuries, we've demonstrated that religious people can be pretty darn good at legalism. I was going to get a t-shirt for today, but I couldn't get it made in time saying, legalism rules. But the promise of this text in Revelation 2.24 is actually quite beautiful and liberating because it says to those who are trying to avoid compromise and and compartmentalization, you have the opportunity to walk in glorious liberty. I'm not going to add anything else on. I ask nothing more of you except just for holding tightly to what you have until I come. I love the way that John Stotts puts this in his commentary. And he says that a new immorality around us must not drive us into a new aestheticism. In other words, we must not overreact to an extreme laxity around us by developing an extreme rigidity within ourselves. We must not overreact to an extreme laxity around us by developing an extreme rigidity inside of us. He says, you know what? There's liberty. I'm not going to lay any extra burdens on you and don't go around layering extra burdens on other people. Simply hold fast to that which we have, Jesus. Jesus said God's commands are not burdensome. In John, 1 John 5, 3, his yoke is easy, his burden is light. And so we're to live in the promise of the glorious freedom that Jesus provides us, that we have in Christ, and not labor under or create for others a whole set of human-made legalism. Otherwise, sometimes we can become an accidental Pharisee. If we layer on rules for people beyond the yardstick of God's word, which is an adequate guide for faith and for life. So persevere, follow in the teachings of Jesus, don't add to them, um, and live in glorious liberty, but he keeps going with his promises. There's another promise we skipped over earlier in the discussion on Jezebel. In verse 21, he says, you know what? This Jezebel, even as horrible and wicked and evil as all of her deeds are, I still have given her time to repent. And so here we see the second promise. There is mercy for those who repent. 
always mercy for those who repent. Jesus is willing to forgive and offer deep relationship even to Jezebel, to the one who's leading others astray. And you may think to yourself, you know what, Brad? That's fine. Sounds nice. But you don't actually know me. You don't actually know what I've done. You don't know my past. You don't know the issues that I'm wrestling with. I'm not even in the distant past, like even this week, yesterday, this morning. Like if you really knew all of that stuff, you'd probably have those nice ushers block me from even setting foot in the church on a Sunday morning. Friend, if that's you and that's your thought process, I want to suggest to you that you don't know Jesus very well and you sure don't know Jericho Ridge very well because Jesus moved through his life with a balance of truth and grace that both confronted sin but also dispensed heaps and heaps and heaps of mercy to people. I love the 19th century British hymn that says, there's a wideness to God's mercy, like the wideness in the sea. There's a kindness in God's justice, which is more than liberty. So there's glorious liberty in following Jesus. And there's wonderful, precious, glorious mercy for those who turn to Him in repentance. And so maybe this morning that's a word for you. You just need to actually let that wash over your soul and say, you know what? I am not good at receiving God's mercy and forgiveness. And just let God, again, speak to you about that. In James chapter 2, verse 13, in the New King James Version, it says just simply and beautifully, mercy triumphs over judgment. So receive that invitation today. Walk in that newness of life. And if you've never actually taken that step before, and you've never actually said, yes, I want to receive the mercy and forgiveness that God offers, then open your heart to Jesus today and say, Jesus, I need that in my life. I want I desire to receive that, I believe. The last promise is maybe the most stunning of all. In Revelation 2, 26 to 29, he says, to all those who are victorious, who persist, who obey me to the end, I'm gonna give them great authority over the nations. They'll rule the nations with an iron rod and smash them like clay pots. That's a quotation from Psalm 2. And they will have the same authority that I receive from my Father and I will also give them the morning star. We're going to talk more about what these verses mean when we get into another section in our series. But he ends with saying, anyone with ears to hear us should listen to the Spirit and understand what he's saying to the churches. And so this final promise for those who are endure, who don't give in to the pressures of compromise or compartmentalization, those who declare their allegiance to Jesus in this age, he says, I'm going to give you authority that's rooted in relationship, and that relationship is with me. Because verse 28 says, I'll give you the morning star. And Jesus actually, at the end of Revelation, in, in chapter 21, says, I am the bright and morning star. The morning star is that star that appears in the night sky at that time when it is the absolute darkest, 2, 3 a.m. And it, it seems that it is as far away from dawn as you can get. But when the morning star rises, that's what begins to usher the dawn in. And so the morning star pulls in the dawn behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls his kingdom behind him and heralds its coming. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to give to those who follow me and walk in that light authority to live in the strength that I provide. I'm going to give you the strength to stay loyal and steadfast to me in, the, in face of incredible temptation and difficulty and whatever it is that you face this week. 
And so this, this image of the morning star reminds us that we have to have the courage to follow Jesus, even when there's a great cost for doing so. I'm going to ask Dustin and the team to come, and they're going to lead us in a song of response that invites examination and confession in our hearts. I want to ask, are there any areas in your life, just talk to Jesus and just say, God, are there any areas of my life that I have allowed compromise to take root? Or I have, I have begun to think about things in a way that are not healthy and helpful. Our prayer response teams are going to be available at the side, and today that's Anne-Marie and myself and Dale and Sylvia, and we're going to uh, pray together. You'll know them because they have name tags on uh, at the back. So I'm going to invite you to stand with me, and let's respond to God's Word together. Let me pray for you.